With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. I'm ready. All yeah. right. Good evening, everyone. Or good morning, depending on where you are. Today is Wednesday, January 13th. And we are here tonight with the one and only... Bob Schaefer. And tonight, Bob, you're going to be talking about court procedure. <clears throat> That's right. Well, why don't we, uh, real quick, um, you guys, a little bit about the controls here. Uh, star six to mute out and star six to unmute. If you have any kind of background noise at all, shuffling papers or anything, hit star six to mute. When we are ready for questions, you hit star eight to raise your hand and ask a question. So, Bob, take it away. All right. Thank you for joining us, you people. And um, I want to share with you uh, some of my 35, 36 years now of uh, knowledge that I've gained over over, um, my own personal experience in the courtroom. It was about... uh, 36 years ago that I started studying basic American land law to become a, a real estate salesman. And that's where I learned about the count, the uh, Congressional Championship Survey. And then I learned later that that's critical to the to getting the United States land patent. <clears throat> now, one of the things I have to, uh, I should say, I don't, I don't think I should say warn you, I, I should probably brag about it. Um, I've not ever seen the inside of a law school, which so means I've not been polluted by their teaching. And that's why I beat attorneys, because I, do, I use law that, that I have discovered in my own thousands of hours of studying at the law library and with my own 9,000 law books that they don't, they're not aware of. But it's, it's binding. And <clears throat> so I can show you how you can win in court by yourself without an attorney. Most people can't afford an attorney, and if they do, they have somebody that's bought and paid for. The, your attorney is your is an officer of the court, and their first duty is to the court and to you second. And <clears throat> if there's a conflict, then uh, you lose, and he will explain you, to you how you're going to lose. That's why the judge wants everybody to have an attorney, because he doesn't want to explain it to you. He wants you to already know why you're going to lose or what you're <laughs> what you're going to expect and maybe the attorney can give you more time to comply and i say we don't comply you have no jurisdiction here none the judge in california and in other states too um but not all states the judge doesn't isn't even a judge he's impersonating an officer so the first thing you want to do tomorrow if you have a court case is go to the administrative office of the court and asked get a, uh, tell him you want a copy of the judge's oath and bond. Now, he probably or she probably does not have a bond. 
And the oath that they take is not the oath that's prescribed in the Constitution, at least not in California. In California, it's a two-paragraph oath that's in today's Constitution, and they only take a one-paragraph oath. And they, it's true. Excuse me. It's true. They were a, um, there was a Professor Vogel who got relief from taking the second paragraph because he belonged to a organization, a Mexican organization that was designed to overthrow the governments of the United States and state of California through force, violence, or other unlawful means. But he argued that since he wasn't involved in that activity, um, he had a right to freedom of association. And the California Supreme Court said, well, that's true. And so they gave him, him only relief from staying that. The other guys don't have relief from that. They could use that as case law or case precedent if they if they wanted to go that way, but they don't. But they just automatically don't take the second paragraph. In fact, I believe it's not even offered to them, and most of them don't know that they're not swearing to the proper oath of office. So the first thing you want to do is go get their oath of office and their bond. Now, when the clerk, and have a witness with you, so when the clerk says, well, they don't have a bond, uh, they're self-bonded or whatever, then you can write up an affidavit that you went with this person to to the clerk and they gave you the oath of office that's attached that's the wrong oath of office and <clears throat> that the clerk said he wasn't bonded. So now this is your, your reversible error if you ever need it someday. In other words, we set them up for a, a default. Um, we set them up for making what's known as reversible error, and they do it all day long. You see, I've made this statement before, but there's new people. When I was studying real estate, they made this, the, the statement that the, the three best or the three most important issues in real estate investing is location, location, and location. I have people like this next one because it's just so true. In the courtroom, the three most important issues are procedure, procedure, and procedure. They screw up on their procedure so often. I'm working with a man right now that's got a criminal case going against him, and the, and the DA screwed up on the procedure, and so has the judge. Now, the judge doesn't have an oath of office, so he's not a judge, pursuant to Article 20, Section 3 of the California Constitution, which is five paragraphs. Now, the, the five paragraphs, the first and the last paragraph, are they, they tell who shall, that's mandatory, swear the oath of office. The next two paragraphs, that will be paragraph two and three, are the oath of office by today's constitution that they don't take. Paragraph four says that no other oath shall be taken as a qualification. In other words, to qualify to be a judge, you have to take this. So they're in violation of paragraph four of that article. When they don't do the right oath of office, then when they don't have a bond, who's going to who's going to cover you for the injuries that you sustain? You know, I was a general contractor and a painting contractor, and I had four licenses. And uh, we always bragged about you know a license bonded and insured. And uh, that's the case. Let's say you go out of business or you, something happens to you. Somebody else, somebody else can come in and finish the job or do the job right, being paid by your bond company. So you, you have to be bonded, and the judges have to be bonded. And the law itself has to have a bond, and the legislatures have to have a bond. So you need to check 
if you need to, uh, if you're in a criminal case, you need to contact the state and find out if this the code they usually come after you under some kind of a code, like the Code of Civil Procedure, the Civil Code, or the Penal Code, or the Vehicle Code. There's 29 codes in California. They are not law. They are not law. In fact, the constitutions were designed by the sovereign people. They were sovereign people. They weren't sovereign citizens. They they hadn't even didn't have a government, so they couldn't be a citizen of any government. So they were the sovereign people, and that's what we claim. We're not a sovereign citizen. We don't we don't go with a sovereign citizen ideology. They've got they're ready for those guys, and they'll put you away because you're a sovereign citizen. And we're not one of those. And you want the record to show that you're not a sovereign citizen. You're a sovereign, just like the two and a half million former subjects of the King of England, they became sovereign people or sovereign inhabitants. Words and their meanings are critical in the courtroom. And so the sovereign inhabitants or the sovereign people created some constitutions to build a government to serve them. It was a one-way thing. You serve me. You're the servant. I'm the sovereign. I'm paying you to work for me. Now, let's just say that they had two and a half million Donald Trumps. Now, they were sovereign, and you work for for these people. Now, there are people that try to detract from the founding fathers by saying, well, they were just a bunch of rich, white slave owners. Well, that's a very negative thing to say. Well, maybe they were white. They were probably all white, but they weren't all rich, and they were not all slave owners. But that's the way they try to put them down. But nevertheless, they still created a government to serve them. So let's just say, for the sake of the discussion, they were all rich white slave owners. They created this constitution, and they made everybody that's going to go work for them sign an oath of office to uphold and defend it. If you don't like it, then you have it amended. They made it a living document, but not living so that Judicial activism can change it, but so that the people could change it. In California, in in the United States, we have, I think, 28 um, amendments. So the people got together and they amended it. They even did prohibition. Later on, that didn't work. They did repeal. And that's all listed in the documents. So then, after they created the constitutions, the, the legislatures adapted. That's That's the word we have to use. Words and their meanings are critical in the courtroom. They didn't pass these statutes, codes, uh, rules, regulations. They adopted them. Now, a constitutionally valid law has to address one issue at a time and and be very simple to be understood. It also has to have an enabling clause that says this was passed by the legislature uh, assembled. And there's different ways that it says that. Now, the enabling clause is sandwiched between the, the codes or the law's title and, the, law, and the, the law's number. And then between that and the verbatim quotes of the actual law itself. Now, with the, all these codes, titles, and manuals, they don't have an enabling clause, which means so they're not law. They're, they're, they represent the law but they can they you, they can hold you against it with a contract. They're all called it's called administrative law. 
And so if you have an administrative law contract with the government, then you're bound by those laws. So you put yourself, you bring yourself down from a sovereign that is exercising only rights to one of the, to a person. And now people think, well, I'm a good person and he's a bad person. And and I say, don't call me a person because I know what the word person means. It means a privileged entity, privileged by the government. The government gives you the privilege to do something that would otherwise be illegal. And so you have to comply with those rules, regulations, codes, and statutes where the sovereign people didn't because they were way up there. They were the sovereign people. And all these other people are working for them, and they're bound by and under the chains of the uh, Constitution and all the laws made pursuant thereto. So now people with the states, this is part of court procedure, by the way, but it's background. The states, there's 50 states now, they are now federal corporate states. They're not, there are two states in every state, and every state has at least two counties for each county. Now, I'm in the state of California. I'm protected as a sovereign by the California 1849 Constitution, which was not ever done away with pursuant to its own Article 10, Section 1 and 2. Section 1 shows how it can be amended. Section 2 shows how it can be repealed. Those two things were never implemented. Now, there's court cases that say, well, when they came up with the uh, 1879, that did away with the, the other one. A court case cannot amend the Constitution. So that court case is, is, is out of bounds. It's, it's not, it did, did nothing. It still, it still protects, excuse me, the 1849 Constitution in California still protects the sovereign people. The freed slaves and their posterity and all these other people that go get licenses and privileges and franchises from the government, they're under the codes, titles, and manuals. <clears throat> and even though there's no enabling clause with them, so we place ourselves uh, under them. But now here's another thing a lot of people don't realize. Even though you may be commerce ready to be under all those laws, you are still not under those laws until you enter into the privileged activity. For instance, you could be a, a cab driver. And <clears throat> so you have to have a, a, a special license to use the highway as your place of business. See, I can use the highway as my right of way, and I do. I own every right of way in America. I haven't had a driver license in 36 years, and I'm, I'm not trying to get people to be like me. I'm just telling you this is what some of us do. <clears throat> and I've got a lot of case law that talks about the commercial aspect of having a driver or operator license. Those people need to be regulated. I want them regulated. I don't want those guys speeding around and tearing up my roads. And so they have to be licensed and insured and regulated. <clears throat> but the sovereign, way up there, he can use that which is his or hers. And so <clears throat> the uh, now we'll, we'll get to our, some, some court procedure. A lot of people, especially new people, they, I help a lot of people. I've been helping people now for a third of, uh, a half of my life, really, uh, half of my adult life anyway. <clears throat> And I can see why the courts want people to have counsel. Now, see, I can be counsel and not be a lawyer or an attorney. I don't claim to be a lawyer or an attorney. You couldn't chase me fast enough to put that burden on me because I would be an officer of the courts. And I would have to 
to tighten up and, and do what the judge wants me to do because I'm going to go in there next week for somebody else, and I don't want to be mad at me for helping you. But see, I don't have that burden. I can I can uh, help people, so we say, buck the system and do it very successfully. And you can count on maybe losing at the lower level, but you have redress in the appellate courts. Now, that brings up another issue. If you read the Seventh Amendment, it's completely different than what some people teach in seminars. I did seminars with a man that was a really good promoter. This guy could sell refrigerators. So Eskimos in the middle of winter. But he didn't have a product. And he came to me, and I became his product for a while, but I couldn't get him to stop doing what I'm going to tell you right now. He would tell people, you have a right to a trial by jury if the amount of controversy is more than $20. That's not true. You have a right to, to a trial by jury if the amount of controversy is more than $20. If it's at, a, at the common law, the first words of that that amendment say in suits at the common law. It doesn't say in suits period or in suits at the civil law. It says in suits at the common law. So what we do, we we convert the, the when they attack us, we convert it to common law with a compulsory cross complaint. Now we now we demand a trial by jury. Now the difference between a trial by jury and a jury trial is that <clears throat> a, a jury trial is where the judge will tell the the jury, I will judge the law, you will judge the facts. Now, when we were in high school and college studying civics and American law, we heard about the trial by jury where the jury judged both the law and the facts. It was the last in the American system of checks and balances against bad law. Now, <clears throat> we've just heard about the uh, the people up in the Hammonds up in, in Oregon, how they, they're serving time against. Because the judge gave him a lenient sentence, and and the prosecutor came back and said he had to um, had to it was it was a um, enforced you know he had to sentence him to the full extent of the law. Somebody else already was the judge. In other words, the legislature became the judge and said you have to sentence these people to five years. Well. Under the American system of checks and balances, those people could get out of that system because they could prove that the system of checks and balances starts in the legislature. Both state and federal legislatures have two houses. At the state, it's the Assembly and the Senate. At the federal government, it's the House of Representatives and the Senate. Now, a law can be passed. It has to start out as a bill. There's no choice. It has to start out as a bill. It's labeled a bill. All these administrative laws never saw a bill. So that's why they're not constitutionally valid. So anyway, it starts at a bill in one of the houses, and it goes, uh, they they have a reading. Somebody, somebody someplace, it could have been one of the people, or it could have been one of the legislators said, uh, you know, there ought to be a law against this or that. Well, make it into a bill and present it to the House. So they present it to the House, and they have a reading to the whole House. Now then, the House sends it to committee. The committee has a second reading. They read it, and they they analyze it, and they decide whether it's good enough or it should be changed and amended, different things, and it might not even get out of that committee. But if they pass it, then they send it back to the House where they have a final reading of the final draft of that 
at that law, that bill that turned into a law. So there's three readings right there. Now, if it's passed, see, we have our system of checks and balances. It might not pass. So, but if it does pass, it goes to the other house where they have a reading to the whole house and they send it to their committee. They could change it. They might accept it like it is. It might die in that committee. The system of checks and balances has worked. It didn't get out of committee. But if it got out of committee and there was any changes, then it was read to that house. If they passed it and they didn't have to pass it, again, the system is in place. But if they pass it, it had to go back to the first house so they could they could adopt the amendments so that they both agree on the final verbiage of the law. Now it goes to the governor or the president. He can veto it. There's your system of checks and balances. It's not. It doesn't have to be implemented because he decided not to. But if he signed it into law, then it goes to the executive. Now that's the cop on the beat. And uh, he can look at it and say, I'm not going to enforce that law. They literally can decide not to enforce that law. That's the system of checks and balances. He has to agree to enforce it. They're not taught that. They're told they better do it because this is where your paycheck is. This raises the money. There's there's fines, fees, and penalties associated with this. You want a paycheck? You know, you better you better start out going out and enforce this law. But they don't have to. Now, if he if he writes it up on a notice to appear, that's that's not a jurisdictional granting paper. He's not a prosecutor. It goes straight to a commissioner, probably in a traffic court. It doesn't even go to the district attorney, who's the one that prosecutes crimes, and he's the one that makes jurisdictional granting papers. So a notice to appear is not a jurisdictional granting paper. It is a witness statement only, and it doesn't comply with the rules of court. It doesn't have lines number 1 to 28. The name of the prosecutor is not on line 1. The name of the of the court is not on line 8. And I was just looking at this, this fellow that I'm helping right now in a criminal case. It doesn't comply. The name of the court is up on line 1. There is no prosecutor on line 1. And the, the paper isn't numbered. It, and when they talk about the law that they broke, they give the number of the law and the title. They don't do the verbatim quote of the law. This is called the essential element rule that they screw up on. In other words, I'm showing you the procedure is all wrong. And this is all called reversible error. So when you first see a court case against you with, with, with what I'm talking about here, you can immediately do an interlocutory appeal. You do a notice of interlocutory appeal. You can up, look up the word or the phrase interlocutory appeal in, in set, at the law library in a set of books called Words and Phrases or in Black's Law Dictionary or UVA's Law Dictionary or Ballantine's Law Dictionary. <clears throat> and so... And then it doesn't comply with the essential element rule where they put in the enabling clause and they do the, the verbatim code of the thing. So there's all kinds of things wrong with with that. So I'm helping the man do an interlocutory appeal before his first hearing. He's got he's got a bunch of issues. The judge is not a judge because he didn't swear the oath of office. The judge is not bonded. The law is not a law. It's a code. It deals with persons. He's not a person. There's no admissible evidence in the record that shows that he's a person. You cannot assume that I'm a person. And that's what they do. They assume everybody is a person. And so we have to we have to make it known. I'm not a person. I object timely on the record that I'm not a person. Don't call me a person. Don't hold me to any of your administrative laws that deal with persons. You know, they, they say all persons shall. 
In fact, California government, uh, California uh, vehicle code 12,500A says all persons who drive, I don't do that, I don't drive or operate anything, that's a commercial term, a motor vehicle, I don't, I don't drive or operate a motor vehicle. I have an automobile, but don't call my automobile a motor vehicle because Title 18, Section 31 defines a motor vehicle as a contrivance, conveyance, or machine used in trade, commerce, business, or industry for a fair fee or rate. It's, it's all in commerce. Government can only control its own people, its own self, and commerce. It cannot control those sovereign people that are way up there that created all these laws to serve them well, not ever to control or tax them. Now, when we when we sue, um, I, I say this in my seminars a lot, the Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, made a really good statement, and it has to be repeated a lot. In fact, you can put it on your mirror and see it every morning. The best defense is a good offense. Now, this worked very well on the football field, but it also worked good on the battlefield and in the courtroom. Now, uh, George F. Patton, he knew about that, and he, he came up with a good offense to, to do what he needed to do on the defense. Now, some people don't realize the, the, the title of, of their, what they are. In other words, if you're, if you're in a lawsuit, a real lawsuit where everything is in order, and they come after you, you are the defendant who defends. So the word defendant relates to defend, defending. So now then if you're attacking, then you are the one who is complaining. So the word complain is kind of put in the word plaintiff. So if you're the plaintiff, then you are the one that's complaining against a defendant. Now, it's really good to be the defendant, excuse me, the plaintiff and not the defendant. Uh, I just love to go in the court, and here I am. I'm attacked. I'm on the attack, and the government has hired a bank of attorneys to defend themselves, and they don't have a prayer against my uh, my arguments uh, because, you know, I don't care how many attorneys they have sitting over there. They can't get around these arguments. These are really righteous arguments. And now the judges, a lot of them, I hate to say this because I think we should respect our judges, but they need to earn it and to keep it that way. But uh, some of them are bought and paid for, and they're going to see it that way. You can sue the city of Los Angeles and never win because the judges are bought and paid for. The judges are now state judges in California since 2000. They're state judges. They shouldn't get a dime from the counties. But you go, and this is what, something I want you to do, you go to the county treasurer and ask, how much money did the county pay this judge in the last uh, five years, and for what reason? And you'll find out they get paid thousands of dollars under the table for petty cash and for little little pleasure things. And, and the more they see it the way of the county, the bigger their little gift is. And so you can get that from the county treasurer because it's his job to, that's public, public information. Now you see, the counties get, and the state get a lot of money for every bed filled in a jail. It costs about $30,000 to house a prisoner. There's over $100,000 in grants from the federal government. So there's about a $70,000 profit for every bed filled. That's why in the early 90s, they started not warning people. You're going to go to jail, boy, and uh, you do. But this is, this is something you need to check into, and you can do this with your court case. Now, when you sue them, I recommend 
suing, and, and I, this is what I do. I can't tell you what to do. I'll tell you what I do. See, I do all this talk that I do is under my First Amendment rights to freedom of speech, and I can I can talk all day long, and to say what I want to. I can. This is a report on my study and my experience. There's no there's no um, uh, legal uh, advice given here at all. But should you do what I do, and I do this, I use the United States District Court because there's a, they're not the state court where they're all bought and paid for. So you go into the United States District Court and you start out with a, in the title, you say this is an action at law. This is a Seventh Amendment action at law pursuant, uh, uh, excuse me, pursuant to the common law because the term common law, let me back up, the term law always refers to the common law. So if the word law is in a phrase like in law, out law, common law, uh, action at law, um, it deals with the common law. If you look at a modern real estate transaction form, there's a phrase, there's a paragraph there that says if, there, if there's a, a suit at law or equity, at law is common law. Equity is civil law. At law is under the law of the land. Civil law is under the law of the sea. So if there's either Bob. Bob, you're breaking up. You disappeared. We can't hear you. Hello? There you are. Go ahead. Okay. So we, we when we do a, when I help people do a lawsuit, I'm their legal secretary and I'm their legal researcher, but I'm not their lawyer. And I help people with, with, with documents, and I can do that. Um, it's one of, my, one of the freedoms that we have as Americans. We can, we can help people. There's the, the next friend document, excuse me, the next friend argument, and there's a court case. There's several court cases um, that say that the one that's most knowledgeable can represent the group. Uh, that's the Railroad, Railway Trainmen versus uh, State Bar Association case a few years ago. So I would use the U.S. District Court myself. Now, in the U.S. District Court, they they try to get rid of your case. I'm just telling you that's what it is. So that's why you have to be tight and get it right because they have a pile of papers. Justice, I'm sorry to say this, but justice is not as important as getting rid of you and getting rid of all these cases that aren't really perfect. Now, they get rid of attorney's cases, too. But as a pro se litigant, they can't get rid of you as easy as they can an attorney because there's all kinds of case law which we use as precedents. There's the Haynes versus Kerner that says pro se litigants shall be held to a less stringent standard. Shall is mandatory. Excuse me. And then there's also a case, some, some judges will say, well, I'm not your attorney. You need to hire an attorney. They'll do all they can to badger you into getting an attorney. Well, what if you can't afford it, but you still want justice? Well, I want justice when I can't afford an attorney. And uh, I understand that uh, if I do something wrong, that the, the law requires you to tell me how to correct it. And I've got the United States Supreme Court case that says that. But what do you have? You know, they don't have anything. So that's why I like be a pro se litigant in the United States District Court and help other people do the same thing. And um, now then, one of the things, they have a Rule 26 hearing that, that they have to go through, which is a, is a motion to dismiss by the enemy 
or the opposition or a motion um, to uh, to dismiss because you didn't say it right as the rule twelve six b motion uh, because you didn't you basically say the words right and a lot of times the judge will dismiss it and give you leave to amend so that's okay and it's called dismiss without prejudice that's a court procedure and a, a phrase you need to know if it's with prejudice it means you lose you're out now then you have to give them a notice of appeal timely if you don't do it timely you're out of luck that the notice of appeal has to be done timely and then it, it, if you need an extension of time on the rest of the stuff you can petition the court for an extension of time now there is a way around everything there's there's a way there's over, we, we go over through under around all roadblocks so if you're not timely there's a way to get around that and that's a motion to reconsider for newly discovered evidence that you get by talking to us guys you're getting you know i lost yeah i lost and, I, and, and they dismissed me with prejudice but I, I want you to reconsider that because I have newly discovered evidence. A motion to reconsider by itself won't fly. It has to have with newly discovered evidence, and they have to allow you to present your newly discovered evidence. That's the law. And so now then, let's say they still rule against you. You better do it within the 30 days or whatever time limit it is in their local rules to file your notice of appeal. Now, when I'm standing in court, I might say, uh, as soon as I see one thing I don't like, you know, it looks like this is going in the wrong direction. I'm, um, excuse me, I'm going to give you my verbal notice of appeal, and I'll give you my written notice of appeal timely. And that's it. But you have to do the written notice of appeal timely. Now then, back to the the court case. You're you're in the U.S. District Court, and they have to have this Rule 26 hearing where they're going to try to get rid of you. And they have to do that before you get discovery. The answer to that one is, yeah, my case isn't presented properly. I need discovery. I need. I get to know what they know through discovery. And that discovery is four different documents, or I should say four different procedures. We do not use um, depositions. They are very expensive. You have to hire an attorney and a court reporter and get a room. And you, But you can sit across from them and, and and ask them embarrassing things, and they have to answer them. And that's okay if you have the money, but most people don't. So we use the, the cheap ones, and that's and they're even more powerful. The request for admissions says if you don't admit to this, or to, you know, like I might say, admit that the earth is flat. Now I'm exaggerating here. Admit that the earth is flat. If he doesn't admit that the earth is flat, or say no, it's not flat. It's round for, for this reason. He's got to come up with with a good reason, then it's gained flat as far as this case is concerned. We know it's not flat, but we just made it flat for this case. So in other words, they have to respond to a request for admission. A lot of times people say, well, I found these papers, they didn't respond. Well, that's a good thing with a with a request for admissions because you could have 25 different things you ask them to admit to, and if they don't respond, it's deemed admitted. It's in the record. Now, with the other one, another one is a request for documents, papers, and things. Like you want to see their oath of office, you want to see their bond, and you're going to you want to ask them for any injured parties, and you want to ask them all kinds of questions, and that's with the request for documents, papers, and things. Then there's interrogatories, which is not just a request for admissions; it's a request for anything that your little heart desires. You can come up with all kinds of things that don't 
that don't have to be admitted to that you can say, explain this, explain that. And uh, so those are the three uh, discovery documents that, that we use regularly. Now, there's a way, I just recently developed this after 36 years. There's a way I can get a form of discovery that's not hey, discovery. Excuse me? Not... Uh, Hello? Sorry, can you, uh, just re- yeah, can you just quickly go over the three docs real quick, the, the names of those docs? I was writing them down. The three discovery okay. documents? The three, the, the three forms of discovery. One is interrogatories. Yeah. One is request for documents, papers, and things. You want some hard evidence to put in the record. Okay. Then there's request for admissions. Request for document papers and things, and then request for admissions and interrogatories. Got it. Thanks a lot. All right, I'll be back now. Okay, now, this this new thing that we have, I just learned the power of an affidavit. So you can you can do this right with the filing of the of the complaint or, or the action at law. You can do an affidavit in support of the action at law, and in that they have to answer it, just like a request for admissions. And you can ask them the same questions you would want them to admit to by making it a statement of fact. So you would say, for instance. Um, it is a material fact. In fact, I like to I like to add a few more descriptions in there. It is a it is a an unconverted uh, uncontroverted material fact that the Earth is flat. Now again, I'm exaggerating. Now they have to come back and respond to that, just like in a request for admission, and say, No, everybody knows it's not flat. It's round, and here's the evidence. Now if they don't do that, it's flat as far as this case is concerned. So you can put in there whatever your heart desires that you want them to uh that you want for your your side of the case. And they have to answer it either by by agreeing to it or by disagreeing with court admissible evidence. They have to prove that your statement is not a fact. Now then you you can have a hundred of those affidavits, but then when you want to change that after you get into discovery, you can take the same hundred things that you've made as a statement of facts and change those, just put in the front, in front of those where it says it is a fact that you put in there, admit that, because this is a request for admissions, admit that it is an uncontroverted fact that the earth is flat. So you just add those two words in front of it and you've got Four more documents, because you've got to make that into t- no more than 25 um, issues or, per, per document. So if you have 100, that's, that's four sets of documents. Now then, when you get the guy on the stand, you know, you say, oh, I don't know how to talk. I don't know what to do, you know. Then you read these things. You put the guy up on the stand and say, is it not a fact that it is an uncontroverted fact that the earth is flat? Or whatever your your issue is, so you can use these three times, three different times. One is in the um, the affidavit that's filed with the the action of law. One is after they give you discovery, and you have to enforce that. You have to say, look, you can't dismiss my case because I didn't uh, state a, a, an action upon which relief can be granted. I don't have all the answers yet. I. Desperately need discovery. 
And if you deny me discovery, that's reversible error. That's appeal. I could use that on appeal. I don't want to do that. I want to go right into discovery. And besides that, if I said something wrong, Haynes versus Turner says I shall be held for a less stringent standard, and you have to tell me how to correct it. If not, that's reversible error. So you, you have to control the, the courtroom. One of my friends says, if you're not conducting, you're not if you're not in, having fun in the courtroom, you're, you're conducting the trial improperly. So anyway, those are the discovery things that you have to do. Now I'm going to give you a list of about six different documents that you need to get, and, and, and toward the end of this uh, for this for uh, session, uh, we're going to have here. We're going to go over these. This is like going to be a workshop. You'll get a pencil and paper, and you'll we're going to fill in the blanks and guide you through this. You need to right now go into the nearest United States District Court, and they have these forms out there in front of the clerk. You can just get them right out of the shelf. No, you don't have to ask anybody. Now, if they're missing some, then you can ask the clerk for that. But the first thing you want is the United States District Court civil cover sheet. Civil cover sheet. This lets the clerk guide this to the to the proper judge. So that's the civil cover sheet. Now then, um, there's another document called certification and notice of interested parties. Certification and notice of interested parties. And that's pursuant to local rule 7.1-1 in the uh, Central District of California. But they'll all have these documents in their own local rule on it. And what that is, there's two columns. One is the party and then the connection or interest on the right. So you, you can put your name as the party on the left, and, and then on the right you'll say plaintiff. And then below that you put the county of San Bernardino as, and then as a party. And then they're defendant. That's their interest. Now, the reason for this document is so the judge can look at all these parties and say, well, I can't look at this case because the fourth one down is my uncle. So I can't, I, he has to pass it on. So they're trying to be fair. And uh, so they, they have to recuse themselves with the certification and notice of interested parties. Now then, Another one that you can get if you need it. Um, I tell people it's better if you don't use this. If you can afford to pay the $400, which is cheap enough to buy the marble halls of the United States District Court for an entire case, then you don't need this form. But if you're flat broke, this document is called Request to Proceed. This is the title of this document. Request to Proceed in Form of Papyrus with declaration in support. You gotta spill your guts. You gotta tell them how broke you are. And they're not gonna let you lie. And I don't suggest you lie. But some people are totally broke and they still need to use this court to seek redress of grievance, to, to, to get their due justice. So you can pick that paper up. And if you want to, you can get two of these, one for a scratch paper, or you can just get one if they're running low, and then make your own copies. So that last one is request to proceed in form of papyrus. That's, I'll spell it. N is one word. F-O-R-M-A. 
second word, papyrus, P-A-U-P-E-R-I-S. Okay, the next one I have here is a summons in a civil action. You cannot prosecute somebody criminally, so you can only do a civil. If you have a, you want to attack your guy under a crime, like I see a lot of notices, um, posted notices that say, if you do this or that, you're in violation of Title 18, Section 241 and 242. You cannot prosecute Title 18, 241 and 242. That's got to be done by the district attorney or the attorney general because you cannot prosecute crimes. Now, under RICO, you can. Now, RICO is stands for racketeering influence and corrupt organization. And you become what's known as a private attorney general. How do you like that? I've been a private attorney general several times. And they like that. They want you to be a private attorney general. They're busy. They want you to do the legwork. You go find out what is wrong. So under that, you could probably use Title 18, Section 241 and 242, which talks about going out on the highway in disguise and violating people's rights. So that's, let's see. Now there's another one I have here someplace. It's a summons. See, when, 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 you, when you sue somebody, you have to give them the complaint or the action of law and you have to give them a summons. The summons is signed by the clerk of the court. And it says, come on down. You don't come on down, you're going to get a default. And, uh, oh, I already read that to you. Yeah, summons in a civil action. Okay, it says, you know, within 29 days after service of the summons on you, not counting the day you receive it, or 60 days if you are the United States, or 60 days if you are the United States or the or a United States agency or an officer or employee of the United States described in Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 12A2 or 3, you must serve on the plaintiff, that's, that's you if you're suing them, and answer. Now, it's like a, like a uh, ping pong game. You serve, you know, if one guy serves, so you have a process server, serve the enemy, go to the other side of the net. Now then he comes back with an answer. That's the first document that comes back to the court. So there's the original action at law that gets served. Then there's the answer that's coming back. Now, if you're getting sued, you have to be the guy that comes up with the answer. And it has to be timely or you lose. They get a default judgment. Now then after you get the answer, you get to reply. So see, you have... Action at law, answer, and reply. Now, sometimes, it's rare, but sometimes you, they'll, an, they'll answer to your reply, and you get to reply to their, their answer again. In other words, you kind of work everything out on paper before you bother the court. Now, a lot of times, the, the judge won't see any of this until everything is in place. And let's say they default. You sued somebody, and he didn't answer. And, and everybody says, well, that didn't work. You know, like, why did I waste my time? That didn't work. He didn't even answer. Yes, it is. It's a good thing. I try to make a good thing out of every negative thing. And so I look for the good thing. And the good thing is, yeah, the guy didn't answer. So he defaults. That means you go in and you get a clerk entry of default. You don't even have to bother the judge. 
unless there's a lot of money involved, and then they have to bother the judge. But the clerk can go to the file and say, yeah, here's the action at law was filed on this day, and nobody ever answered to it. So it's not in the record. She can issue a judgment called a clerk's entry of judgment. Now, if there's a lot of money involved, she has to go get the court entry of judgment. It's called a default judgment. You won because they defaulted, and it happens all the time. It happens on both sides, too. A lot of the people default because they just don't know what to do. Now, I'm going to tell you a quick story. I've told it before, but there's always new people. There was a lady who married a man uh, 27 years ago. He had been divorced for five years. She didn't even know who the ex-wife was. She married this guy, fell in love with him, married him. They built a business on a main corner in San Bernardino, California. 1.1 acres, nice business. And and, uh, they were in business for 25 years. And they built a nice home and they were living a good life. Well, he died about two and a half years ago. The ex-wife went and hired a shyster attorney that I beat all the time because he's a code enforcement attorney. And she didn't know what to do, so she defaulted. So he, he sued her for his for the ex-wife's client and got the judgment. Now then, he got, got, the, got her house away from her. She doesn't have a house. So she has to move all of her stuff in the business, which is now vacant because the owner died. So she's living above the office in, a, in another office with her stuff on her dogs. And so then this attorney comes after her for $58,000 in his attorney's space to steal her house. She, again, didn't know what to do. And so he got a default judgment, which is the way the court works. So she still didn't have the money. So then he got to put a lien on her business which is worth a half a million dollars, the, the, just the buildings and the, and the corner lot. And she didn't know what to do again. So then he got a sale date. Now he's going to sell the business, the $500,000 real estate, for maybe 300000 at a forced sale, take his 58000 get paid, and give her the balance. That's the way that works. But that very late date, somebody said, you need to see Bob. So... I went over and I talked to her and I said, well, this is what you need to do at this late date. And this is where the offer to pay comes into. And by the way, I developed the offer to pay. I'm bragging now and I know it might sound bragging, but that's just the way it is. I'm proud of the fact that I developed this. I didn't go to a seminar, I did reading or a book. It's my development. And it's because I've helped so many people and I've seen so many doctors come back where the oppositional state, especially in mortgage foreclosures, well, the guy didn't even make an offer to pay. Well, what do you do in that case? You start making an offer to pay, but you make it where they can't accept it because you use American law and jurisprudence as it was written. In other words, we don't twist anything. We don't use loopholes. We use the law as it is written. So we say, I want to get this cleared up. I want to get this taken care of. I'm making a good faith offer to pay. Right there, we cover the no offer to pay issue. And then... <clears throat> We make it impossible. We need to know where we can bring our legal tender cash. Now, they don't like cash. They want uh, cashier's checks and money orders, and they'll say so. But wait a minute. We have legal tender laws in America. They have to accept your cash. So we need to know where we can bring our legal tender cash 
to pay this judgment. And that's number one, the location. Number two, we need to know what the court requires this offer to pay what in what medium of exchange. In other words, are, 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 can we do this in marbles or checkers or ping pong balls or Federal Reserve notes or treasury notes or dollars of silver? What, what are you requiring and by what authority? Now, you see, the Coins Act of April 2, 1792 is the only American law that defined the dollar. And they defined it as a weight or measure of, a, of 0.999 fine silver. That's a dollar. And because it says, it says the money of account of the United States shall be had and held in the form of a dollar, dime, cent, and bill, now we know what a dollar is. And this judgment was for dollars, wasn't it? $58,000 to this lady. She had to pay $58,000. Well, guess what? Dollars are no longer available at the corner bank, are they? And we point that out. So what are you requiring, and by what authority can you require that thing? The word thing is important because it's in the Constitution. There's no thing other than silver or gold. And so we're using the superior law supreme to, to the state Constitution and to all the state statutes. Now, this this um, this judge was supposed to take an oath of office to support all that. So he's bound by his oath of office, whatever it was, to comply with the Coinage Act of April 2, 1792. And he can't charge you for dollars. So he's requiring you to do an impossible thing. And there's, there's maximum law that says they can't require you to do an impossibility. So we make an offer to pay, and they default. Now, within the last... 45 days, I helped a man get rid of a $186,000 Superior Court judgment, State of California. Now we sent the offer to pay to the judge. He's the one that issued the order. The law in California is California Government Code 6850 that says almost the same thing. It says the money of account of the State of California and all court proceedings. So what good would it do to make the offer to pay to the guy that got the judgment? No, you give it to the guy that issued the judgment. Can you repeat so, the code, the California code that you just uh, Cal- mentioned? California Government Code 6850. 6850? Yes. Okay. And hey, by Bob, the way, yes. Are you going yeah. to be ready for questions soon? Yeah, I'll finish this and we'll go into questions. Okay. If you look at 6850, it takes you back to the historic part of the political code of 1872 and the original statute of 1850. They use the same words. In those older laws, they didn't have Federal Reserve notes or checkbook money or credit card money. Now, they will accept checkbook money and credit cards and Federal Reserve notes. We didn't ask them what you'll accept. We asked what are you requiring and by what authority can you require that thing? And so this is what puts him in a bind. So the judge defaulted. Well, guess what? We put him in the, in, the, in the offer to pay. We have all kinds of uniform commercial code stuff that says if you default, it's discharged. So you, you, you default on this offer to pay, that whole amount is discharged. So then we did the same thing for the for bankruptcy court, United States Bankruptcy Court. They had issued a $1.8 million judgment against this guy. And by the way, I've got to do this one thing, and then we'll go to Q&A. That court hired a trustee that owed the IRS $60,000.
when a trustee gets involved in the bankruptcy court, he owns your stuff. Same thing with a with a, a, a family trust or a living trust. That's why you don't want to use those. You want to use a foundation instead. The trustee owns your stuff. And if, the, if the, he gets a judgment against him or a word of some kind, your stuff can be used to satisfy his 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 um, debt. Now, in this one case, they sold $60,000 worth of this man's stuff to pay that that trustee's debt. Now, and then they want us to call him your honor. This is so disgusting. How they how they abuse their power, usurp power. They have a limited delegation of authority, and they go way past that. Because hey, they got the black robes and the guns and the badges, and what do you have? Well, we have a courtroom. We have an appellate court. And one final thing: a lot of people cannot afford to go to the United States Supreme Court. See, to go by the way, to go into the U.S. District Court, you have to have a federal question. So we make everything a federal question. It violated the first, fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth amendments. Now we have a federal question. They have to take it. But to get to the Supreme Court, you have to have a federal question of great public interest. And the greater the public interest, the more chance that you're going to be in the 1% that they look at. They get 6,000 cases a year and they look at 60. So, but we're going to take them there anyway, and we're going to spend their money, and we're going to get a lot of good experience learning the courtroom. I've been to the Supreme Court. Uh, I've had doctors filed at the Supreme Court. And in other words, years ago, they said, you know, we got all this government money. What does that little old lady or that little old man have? He's broke. He can't, he can't hire an attorney for $350 an hour and take it and go this all the way with it. Well, there's a lot of United States Supreme Court cases that are four to five decisions against a government. So, but if that guy didn't go all the way with it, he would have lost. But he got to the U.S. By the time he got to the United States Supreme Court, he lost all the way up there, and he has four United States Supreme Court justices rule against him. But five said, no, 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 no. He was right way back at the beginning. Okay, I'm ready for Q&A. Okay, you guys. If you have any questions for Bob, hit star eight on your phone. Star eight, and then we'll go into it. You'll be called on. Um, I've got a question for you, Bob. Sure. Um, I've been studying uh, uh, child sex rings uh, lately, and it seems like that the major focus of it always goes back to the participants who are in who are powerful people in powerful positions, like politicians and judges. What do you know about this, if anything? I, I somehow I missed the whole. The, the question I heard judges and could you say it again slowly <laughs> I did say it um, <clears throat> I have been studying lately about child sex rings and it seems that uh, in many cases the participants or the perpetrators are people in powerful positions like politicians and judges and others have you studied this at all? Do you know anything not, about it? Not at all, but if you have good evidence, that's a crime, and you take it to the attorney general or the district attorney or the or the city attorney. Well, most likely they're, they may be pedophiles too, 
Well, they may be, but you don't you don't you don't shoot yourself in the foot. You assume that they're not, and you go you do what you can do, and then see where it flies. Because so many yeah. people do just exactly what I said. They say, well, they're all corrupt, you know, and they just give up before they even try. Well, the thing is that this is how the government's controlled. This is how they get judges to rule over you. Or maybe not all of them, but uh, a certain number happen. of them. That does happen. Anyway, we got a couple questions from the board. Two lives to live. Go ahead. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, question about um, getting personal jurisdiction in the United States District Court over a municipality in another state. I want to get jurisdiction over them in my state because that's where the in, that's where the effect of the of their action was was predominantly felt. That's a perfect that's a perfect scenario. It's called diversity of jurisdiction, and that's one of the reasons the United States District Court was set up so that you could have access to that other state in your state. Oh, so on the uh, on the on the uh, cover sheet, let me pull it up here. It says number two. This is paragraph or box number two. It says basis of jurisdiction. Place an X in one box only. Number one, U.S. government plaintiff. Number two, U.S. government defendant. Number three, federal question. U.S. government not a party. Number four is the one you'll use, diversity. Indicate citizenship of the parties in item three. So diversity is where you're going to get jurisdiction in your case. All right. Well, what form is that again? Is it the form you told me about earlier? Yeah, it's the civil cover sheet. The civil cover sheet, and it has that item number on there for number you, box number four. It. It's a diversity case, right? Excellent. Box, excellent. box number two, number four is the one that you need to deal with. Mm-hmm. See, this is the beauty of being pro se and being what we are. You can Thank reduce you. big, big government down to that attorney over there at the other table, or two or three attorneys. You don't have to fight the, all the guys with guns and stuff like other people are doing right now. You just sue them. And then if you didn't do it right, you have the judge tell you how to do it right. And give okay, them the case log. Let me ask you this about the administrative process and, and exhausting administrative remedy. How does a pro se have to respond to that kind of accusation? Well, you, you, well, so you didn't you say, exhaust your administrative remedy. Yeah, you say I'm I'm attempting to exhaust my administrative remedy before seeking a judicial remedy. I'm therefore appearing specially and not not uh, generally for the sole purpose of of challenging the jurisdiction. And then we've got three pages of jurisdictional challenge case law that says when jurisdictional challenge, everything must come to a screeching halt. Do they stop? No. That doesn't mean it didn't work. It means it worked very well. You've got a judgment later. They defaulted. Right. Don't ever give up. You know, that was Winston Churchill. There's a lot of stuff on the radio now about Winston Churchill, but I've got to tell you this quick story. He was asked to give the speech at the graduation at Westminster Lobby. Now, he, he was known as, as the guy that saved England. So he was very old. He got up when it was time for him to give his speech, 
It was very, very short. He looked at in the one wing and he said, never give up. He looked at the other wing and he said, never give up. And then he looked at the main audience and said, never, ever give up. And he sat down and that was his whole speech. That was the most noteworthy speech he ever gave in his life. So we don't ever give up. Next question. Okay, so if somebody um, needs help doing uh, a case like that in court, are you available for coaching? Sure. Okay. Get that coaching at youhavetheright.com. Okay, California, you're next. Hi, hi, Bob. I have a quick question for you regarding the California Government Code 6850. Sure. I pulled that I pulled that um up while we were uh before you were done. And I see sixty eight fifty two says all legal tender notes issued by the United States shall be received at par in payment for all taxes due the state or to any county or municipal corporation of the state. Is there any way around that one? Because it looks like I they, am they, they, I am so glad you brought that up. The first <laughs> time I saw that I thought, Oh, that that shoots me down. But then you yeah. see what I tell everybody is look at each word and analyze each word. Now, you read that again. It says, shall be received. Does it not? At par. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a, that means it's, if you offer something, they had better take it. It doesn't say you have to tender it, does it? Right. Okay. There it is. That doesn't bother our argument whatsoever. Shall be received. You know, it doesn't say marble, seashells, and babies shall be received. It says what shall be received. That's something that they can receive. But it doesn't say anything about forcing you to offer it. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, other people are going to see that too and say, well, he obviously didn't see that. No, I saw it, and I have a response for it. It never has come up. Now, there was one judge that (laughs) This says the court orders that the defendant may pay in Federal Reserve bills. May is permissive. It's not shall. See, he even used the right words. So if you, if you didn't know what words mean, you say, oh, shoot, he just said I had to pay in Federal Reserve bills. No, he didn't. He said that I may, I may pay in Federal Reserve notes, and they shall receive them pursuant to the law you just read. Besides that, those are all statutes. They're not uh, and codes. They don't have an enabling clause. They're not bonded. Those are all administrative laws for administrative law tribunals to go before an administrative law judge. We're talking an administrative law tribunal. That's an ALT. An administrative law judge is an ALJ. And that's where our courts are today. They're all under administrative law. They don't apply to our sovereigns. It's all no, in-house can, stuff. Bob, can you can you do a little bit more elaboration on the enabling clause? And the reason why I ask that question is because um, the um, uh, in in doing some research uh, regarding the enabling clause, I looked up uh, California's, and of course it changed from uh, how they had it with to now with the people of the state of California. And uh, that was changed. So the question I have is, 
it looks, it appears that when I looked up the the, um, the bills, that these um, that the bill actually had the enabling clause. So okay, how, but it has to it has to be in the in, in the final document. Okay, it has to go all the way through, so that you know when you're looking at that law, you know to hold responsible if you're injured. That's what that's for. That's why that legislature has to be bonded. If they pass a, if they pass a law that injures you, that you you eventually because they're just the legislature. The Supreme Court is the one that says it's a bad law. It might be a bad law. Okay, I was injured by that bad law. So says the Supreme Court. Now I want to know who's going to indemnify me. I want to, I want that bond, and I want to know who has that bond, and that will be oh. in the enabling clause. And we were to look up, say, for example, Government Code 6850. That would have that that would um we could obviously find the bill, right? Yes. Okay, and the bill would have it. But what you're saying is, in the code book itself, it's supposed to also have the enabling list, the enabling clause. That's right. That's the last. Okay. That's your last notice. See, due process. The term due process means notice and okay. opportunity and opportunity to be heard. Okay. So you didn't get notice if it didn't get all the way through to the final product. Okay. I I got it now. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> all right. Doesn't look like we have any more questions, Bob, so I think we're good. Okay, I suggest everybody go to the 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 serious go to the United States District Court and get these documents. So we're gonna fill them out on a future date. Oh, okay. Because they uh, can be complicated. I've I've sent people over there and they call me and I don't know what to do. So now I I know what to how to tell them and guide them so they can know, get that done. Do you know if these forms are available in PDF? I do not know that. They might be. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Bob. Why don't you send me an email with uh, these forms and I'll look them up and maybe I can post them and we can go over it on the computer. Hey, Chad, they're on, they're, on, they're, on the, they're on PDF. You can download them from the court's website. Okay, Fantastic. so I'm going to download them from uh, Tanya, and good. we'll use them. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for, for joining us tonight, whoever was here. Okay, everybody. Um, also, uh, be sure to check out youhavetheright.com. We have a lot of various uh, different services and things, and... Oh, by the way, for those of you that are interested in status correction, we have another status correction webinar coming up uh, on the 20th of February, so keep an eye out on the website for that or contact me. All right, everybody, thank you very much. Good night. Thanks, Tad. night. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.